When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. And as far as game four is concerned, which I didn't get to see a lot of, I had it on, we were on the air, you know the deal on the air, it's tough to watch. Kodai Senga. Bow down right now, Pete, to Kodai Senga. Kiss, kiss the ass of our God, Kodai Senga. Show the man the respect he deserves because Kodai Senga has been a tremendous New York Met. And on Thursday afternoon, oh, he's got the shadows. I'm sure the shadows are helping him. And it probably was. The Arizona Diamondbacks had no shot against the Ghost Fork. Through the first five innings, he strikes out 10 guys. He got through trouble in the sixth inning. That's when he walked the two guys. He didn't walk anybody in the first five innings. He gets through trouble in the sixth. He ends up finishing six innings, two hits, no runs, 10 strikeouts, two walks. He lowers his ERA to 2.95. He's got 11 wins, if you care about that. All hail, Kodai Senga. Hail. I mean, do we... Uh, you said it earlier, so I'm not I'm not stealing it. Cy Young, but then there's the potential uh, of the Rookie of the Year as well. So the Rookie of the Year one is tough. Okay, let's start with... Well, you know what? You want to start with Rookie of the Year? Yeah, let's, we start, start, with let's start with Rookie of the Year. Because he was one of the guys <laughs> he's up against, he just faced... In, so it's very difficult to compare position pitchers. Like, I don't even know how you go about doing it. Corbin Carroll has 47 stolen bases. He's got an 864 OPS. He's got 24 home runs, 69 RBIs, 280 average. He is the rookie of the year. Spencer Steer has had a tremendous season for Cincinnati, but... I think what makes it difficult, look, put it this way. Kodai Singh has got a better chance to win the Cy Young than the Rookie of the Year, which is a really weird statement to make, but it's true. It's also just, like I said, it's really difficult to compare those offensive numbers and just try to compare it to a pitcher's numbers. I guess you could look at war and try to measure it that way, but it's it's a complete, like it's apples to oranges. But let's get to the Cy Young. In my opinion, and I've, Crunch the numbers. I've analyzed it. Kodai Senga is third in the National League Cy Young. That's where he's at. Third. Now, let that sink in if you want to take my word at it. We'll go through the numbers in a second. I'll at least try to prove my point. If you take my word for this, if I told you in March, Kodai Senga is going to be third in the NL Cy Young voting, dude, we'd be printing World Series tickets. We'd be like, wait a second. Verlander, Scherzer, Quintana, and oh, by the way, Kodai Senga is going to be third in the Cy Young voting? Remarkable. So, 
I want to give you his numbers. And you'll get why he's not the Cy Young Award winner. Like, I, I can't make an argument that doesn't exist. But I can make the argument that he's third. So right now, to me, the favorite, it's close, is Justin Steele. It is very close between Justin Steele and Blake Snell. I'm going to take wins and losses out. I don't think it matters. Justin Steele has made 27 starts. Kodai Senga has made 27 starts. Justin Steele's thrown a buck 59 in innings. Senga, 155. So very similar. Steele with an edge by three innings. Senga has given up 30 less base hits, but he's also walked 39 more guys. Senga has struck out 32 more guys. I say that because it's all in a very similar amount of innings. Senga's ERA, 295. Steele's ERA, 249. Half a run better for Justin Steele. So it's close. Steele's got the edge. He walks less guys. He does strike out less guys. He does put, I guess, the same amount of base runners on because, yeah, their whip, Senga's whip is actually a little bit higher. It's 1 2. Steals is 1 1 3. Opposing batting average, Senga's 205. Steals 242. It is very, very close between both Senga and Steele. And Senga has the third best ERA in the National League. Steele has the second best ERA in the National League. The other guy, who I, I'm sure many people would say is the favorite, I would give Steele the slight edge, is Blake Snell. <coughs> Blake Snell has made three more starts than Senga in Steele, 30 of them. He's only thrown, though, eight more innings than Steele and 12 more innings than Senga, 167 innings. He's got a 2-4-3 ERA, which, again, half run better than Kodai, a little bit better than Steele. He has many more strikeouts than Justin Steele, 217 compared to Senga's 191, Steele's 159. But if you think Kodai Senga walks, guys, Blake Snell says, hold my beer. Blake Snell has walked 93 guys this season, which is far and away the most in the National League. He's got the lead, and he's got the lead by a lot. He's second in strikeouts behind Spencer Stride, who to me, ERA of 373, I don't want to hear about it. Like, ah, He's not a candidate. It's those three guys. So those three guys, <coughs> Bryce Elders had a very good year. Logan Webb's had a solid year. Their ERAs are now in the mid threes. So it's Snell, it's Steele, it's Senga. To me, it's Steele one, Snell two, Senga three. I'd understand if you want to go Snell one, Steele two, Senga three. But Kodai Senga is third to me in National League Cy Young. Uh, Logan Webb has a lot of innings, so I could understand the the feeling of, well, look, Logan Webb's done 193 innings. That's almost 30 innings more than Snell. It's almost 40 innings more than Senga. What about that? Fine, he's had a great year. He's also got a 3-4 ERA. So I think Kodai Senga is not necessarily in the Cy Young picture in terms of winning because I don't think there's enough he could do based on the numbers I just laid out. I guess Snell or Steele just implode and the ERAs become a lot closer maybe. But... Right now, he's third. He's one of three pitchers in the National League with an ERA sub three, which is now sitting at 295. And if you want to go around Major League Baseball, there's only two guys in the American League with a sub three ERA in Garrett Cole and Sonny Gray. That's it. So it's sort of exclusive company for what this man has accomplished. He's not going to win the Cy Young, but I think he is third in the National League Cy Young voting. You know, uh, it's just, it's interesting because I, I, I understand why you say Steele is one. 
I feel like they all are missing something. Like Steele's not as dominant. <laughs> Again, the, the innings pitch is part of it too for Sanga. Um, the too many walks is there, but no one's really as dominant and running away. Like Sandy Alcantara, a couple last year was just straight up like there was no question about it. Like he was pure and the story. Yeah, no question. Cy Young. There's no one that's really like you could make a case for any of those three guys. And Blake Snell because he's walked a hundred freak almost a hundred batters. I don't even I don't even know if you could put him too. Yeah, it's. What's funny about Cy Young voting is it's all about what matters to you. So normally for me, innings pitched matter. If I'm looking for the guys that have thrown the most innings, it really falls towards Zach Gallon and Logan Webb. The problem is their numbers are just not nearly as good. So I, I give them credit for that. I move them up a couple of notches. This is just me. I'm one guy. And the Cy Young isn't an exact science. It's voters. It's what voters think are important. I always thought strikeouts are sort of overrated. I bring it up. I know it matters to a lot of people, but as long as you're getting guys out, who cares? Like, why does it matter? I also looked at whip as a little overrated too, because who cares how many guys you're putting on base? Are you allowing them to score? That's why ERA and innings pitched have always been traditionally the most important stats I look at. I know there's a lot of analytics people like to look at. I'm just looking at the results. Like, guy didn't give up a lot of runs. That's your goal. Like, your job as a pitcher is to throw as many innings as you can and not allow runs. I'm pretty simple. And so those, to me, are the two things I like to look at. Senga's really good with the ERA, not as good with the innings pitch, even though that's not necessarily his fault. We know how the Mets have handled him this season. And co to compare Snell and Senga together, both of them, uh, Snell in particular, throws a lot of pitches out of the strike zone, which is why he walks a lot of guys. But – if you look at the strikeout totals compared to innings, it's just like, how does every, how does he keep on striking out so many people? It's because his pitches are so nasty. If you're not patient <laughs> enough, you're swinging at crap, and that's why they get through. Yeah, it's, it's it's a weird it's perception there. So I do I do get that. I, I get a little bit of it's it. all to, to your point. This is not a great crop of candidates. Like I admit that, and I don't even need mean just by name value. I mean by performance. There have been years in which. These numbers are nice. They're not good enough. The idea we're considering guys at 165 innings for the National League Cy Young, and there's only a couple of weeks left in the season, that's a little different. But we also live in a different world. My only point to all this is that he's not going to win the Cy Young. He should not win the Cy Young. He's in the mix. He's going to fit. He's going to get, I would think, if the voters get it right, a top five finish. Like I say third, he may not finish third. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the writers don't give him that. But He's a top five finish for the National League Cy Young, and that's impressive. It also leads you to Yamamoto because Yamamoto, who is significantly younger than Senga, is another guy coming from Japan. Another guy where, much like with Kodai, we don't know much about him. We can go to baseball reference. We can see their numbers. We can read what the scouts say about him. But Yamamoto, over the last few weeks, has garnered a ton of attention. He's garnered a ton of attention for a few reasons. Every major league team is watching him. Every major league team. There was a report last week that the Yankees plan to be really aggressive in going after Yamamoto, that they may offer him $150 million. He throws a no-hitter a couple of weeks ago. And then if you just glance over at his numbers because you're curious, because you're like, so how good is this guy? His numbers are ridiculous. Like he's got... 
insane stats. So what are the Mets going to do? Like how aggressive are the Mets going to be? I would want them to be aggressive. The success with Kodai Senga and Yamamoto's numbers are better than even what Senga did last year. And he's thrown more innings throughout his major league career. Like he had a, a year. I'm looking at it right now. 2022, 193 innings. Senga was never getting to that number. Year before that, 193 innings. So he had back-to-back seasons of 193 innings. This season, he has a 1.20 ERA. He's thrown 150 innings this year, and he has a 1.20 ERA. He averages, you'll love this, because I think Hoff's big knock on Kodai is he walks too many guys. Yamamoto averages 1.5 walks per nine innings to go along with his nine strikeouts per nine innings. He has a whip of 0.85. What does this mean? It means he may be better than Senga, and Senga's going to be in the top five in Cy Young voting. Let's go. Sign this man. Let's sign this man. Let's go. Senga, Yamamoto. I know Otani can't pitch next year, but maybe in 2025. Let's go. I'm going all Japan. I'm all about it. Why not? They're great. <laughs> now, now listen, is it is it there's those stupid rumors about well, there's a lot of guys that won't be on the same team because they respect their uh you know, co- you know, their their elder states or whatever, whatever the term is I'm looking for. Where uh, they respect their fellow um countrymen. There you go. That's what it is. Native <laughs> <Right>. person. <laughs> but but uh, listen, I mean, I think that's a crack of crap. Get give them the most money, they'll come here. Well, I don't know if this means anything, but it's certainly exciting. According to Andy Martino, Yamamoto will be represented by the same agent as Kodai Senga and Edwin Diaz. So there's already that Met connection when it comes to agency. Look, Yamamoto makes a lot of sense for a bunch of reasons. Number one is age. Most of the time when guys get to free agency, they are not 25 years old. I mean, what pitcher, pitcher, gets to free agency with this kind of resume, whether it's in Japan or anywhere else, at 25. That is completely unprecedented. So from an age perspective, you're getting a guy whose prime has not even arrived yet. Number two, I think the Mets are going to have a hesitation. This has been brought up by emailers in the past to give up any kind of draft compensation in signing a free agent. That was always going to be the issue when Julio Urias was an option. Obviously, Julio Urias is not an option and probably never pitches in Major League Baseball again, nor does he deserve to. Yamamoto has no draft pick attachment. The only attachment he has, and I briefly touched on this on the last Rico, is the posting system. And in the posting system, you not only have to sign him, so whatever the contract is, then there's money you have to give to nip on baseball based on how much you give him. I don't think that's a Steve Cohen issue. I don't. And if I trust Cohen, which I do, that, yeah, they're trying to win next year, but they're also trying to win over the next few years. Well, Yamamoto's the perfect guy. He's he's more perfect than anyone else you'd go after because of his age. So when I hear that the Yankees are going after him, my response is game on. Like, I, we haven't seen the Mets and the Yankees have a war over a free agent. We haven't seen it. We're going to see it eventually. And if it's over Yamamoto, the Mets better win. They better win. Because the Mets need Yamamoto, believe it or not, more than the Yankees do. You know, if I'm a Yankee fan, I'd say, great, I'll take Yamamoto. 
but I need offense. The reason my team has sucked this year is we can't score any runs. The Mets, while they haven't had a great offense, their biggest issue by far is starting pitching. They need to build a rotation. But very exciting. Every time I look at this guy's numbers, I get all excited. What's not exciting is that the Cubs called up Pete Crow Armstrong. So the trade that really, I think, taught Steve Cohen a lesson from a few years ago. We'll see what it turns into because now Pete's got to prove he's a Major League Baseball player. You know, that's the, the second aspect of this. Yes, he's a great prospect. Excuse me. Yes, he made a great defensive play the other day. He's got to go hit. He's got to be a great major leaguer. But I think that that trade has influenced the Mets over the last few years. I think the Pete Crow Armstrong trade is a part of why they weren't aggressive last year at the trade deadline, which you could argue turned out to be a good thing. Because as much as we wanted David Robertson, Wilson Contreras, you know the Cubs were asking for Ronnie Mauricio. So if the Mets had said, like we all wanted, F it, let's go win a World Series, and made that trade, they probably don't win anything. The results are probably the same in the first round. And then Ronnie Mauricio's not even here. <coughs> Excuse me. So it's tough, man. When you're a good team, and last year was a great opportunity that the Mets didn't take advantage of, making a big trade deadline deal can help you win a World Series. Ask the 21 Braves. Ask our team in 2015, even though we didn't win the World Series. The Cespedes trade is the reason the Mets won the division. Obviously, if Billy would have hit one out of the ballpark, it could have changed everything last year. He had a bad trade deadline. We all know that. Darren Ruff, Daniel Vogelback, Michael Gibbons, we all know. But what also could have been a bad trade deadline is trading a prospect that turns into something for a guy that doesn't make that impact for you. Javi Baez and Trevor Williams for Pete Crow Armstrong may well be that trade if Pete Crow Armstrong turns into something. Because that's, look, that's the other caveat about these prospect trades. Even the Scherzer deal. We were all ecstatic that they got rid of Max Scherzer knowing what's ended up happening and knowing what he did for us, coming up small in every big spot. Now he's done with Texas. So, yeah, I'm glad they traded him, but Luis Angel Acuna's got to become something. If he doesn't, then great, they got rid of him. Now what? You know what I mean? Like, I, I appreciate that Steve Cohen used his checkbook to aggressively get something for Max, and that's all on Cohen. If Acuna becomes something, that's on Epler. Then I say, hey, good movie. He picked the right prospect to get back. As of right now, and his numbers are not impressive at AA, not burying him, just giving you information. He has not hit very much. He is stealing a ton of bases. That trade, like, I can't celebrate it yet. I celebrate Max isn't here. I celebrate that the Mets made the right pivot as much as it was painful at the time, as much as I didn't want it at the time. But then you need your prospects to hit. Otherwise, what did we just do? Otherwise, it's great. We got rid of Max Scherzer, but now what? Now, uh, one caveat to that, by the way. Either the prospect hits, but there's one other thing you can do or you trade that prospect. So what I mean by that is for this trade to be like a classic, Luis Angel Acuna has got to become a player. Or if the Mets took him in the offseason and used him in a deal for Shane Bieber, now it doesn't matter if Acuna becomes something. Because now it's about what you turned him into. And if you turn that prospect into a Major League Baseball player that can help you, then doesn't matter what he turns into. So look at it that way.
Yeah, turn Max Scherzer into uh, Shane Bieber. That's that would be incredible. That'd be that'd be pretty good, right? <coughs> now it's going to cost a lot more than Luis Angel Acuna, but it, still, that would be very very nice. Uh, the Mets did bring back Anthony K. Anthony K. was one of the arms in the Marcus Stroman trade. Uh, he's got no options left, so he's either going to be on the major league roster next year or he's going to be DFA'd again. Unfortunately, as much as it's nice to get back a prospect you traded how many years ago for Marcus Stroman, there's no evidence Anthony K is going to be a good major league. He has not been a good major leaguer. He has not been a very good minor leaguer. So there's really not a lot of hope that this is going to turn out to be some kind of steal. Uh, and lastly, the double A watch, man. They got all their prospects down there, including calling up Jet Williams now to double A. And they're going to be playing a playoff series against the Somerset Patriots, also known as the Yankees. I do question one thing, and I may as well question it now. Luis Angel Acuna, since the Mets acquired him, has played shortstop and second base. Jet Williams has been playing shortstop and center field. Can we have them play more positions? Like shortstop is nice. Great athletes play shortstop. But they're kind of set at shortstop. They're kind of okay there. So with Acuna and Williams, who are now closer to the major leagues, they're in double A, I just want to see more position versatility. Like in the case of Acuna, second base and shortstop, I, those positions may not be available. Now, the hope is Acuna is a super utility guy. He plays everywhere. So he plays every day and he plays like every single outfield, outfield, outfield. The Mets are going to need these guys and Jets doing it in center field. They need these guys to play more outfield. I think that's going to be very important over the next couple of years. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard stories that left field is wide open. <laughs> you know, maybe they want to give it a shot. <laughs> Have you heard that one? A <laughs> uh, couple of emails to the Rico B, the Rico B at gmail.com. Lucas writes, Evan, I know this is meaningless. By the way, everything is meaningless. Okay, we're at the stage of this season where, I mean, everything we just talked about for the last hour, is it really, it's meaningless. So what are we talking about? Lucas writes, I know this is meaningless, but do you have any clue why the great Brody Van Wagenen above wind in Windbreaker in this photo? He sent me a photo. Being behind home plate at City is happening so frequently. It shouldn't, but it bothers me. Long live David Stearns. So, yeah, he did send a picture. It does look like Brody Van Wagenen sitting in the first row. He's an agent. Like he represents guys. I think he represents some Mets. I don't I don't care about Brody Van Wagenen. Like when I think about his tenure as Met general manager, it was such a meaningless. Uh, it's just the yeah, that'd be the word, even though he did make an all-timer in trading for Edwin Diaz. We have to give him some credit for that, even though we didn't like it at the time. I don't know. I don't have an ill will towards Brody Van Wagenen, but yes, he is sitting behind home plate at City Field. Dave Clyde writes. And now we know why Pete isn't signed yet. Oh, now we know why? I was told he's a bad guy. Isn't that what we were all told? Were they simply waiting for David Stearns to give him the courtesy of making a decision about what to do with Pete Alonso? And were they shopping him around the trade deadline just to be able to give Stearns some data about his perceived market value so that he has more data when it comes to negotiating with his agent? <coughs> um... I've always found it kind of weird 
that you have a new team president who's clearly going to make these decisions, and yet you were making significant moves at the trade deadline without his input, assuming the Mets weren't back-channeling David Stearns. I think in the case of Scherzer and Verlander, I think Steve Cohen made the decision and said, look, this isn't working. Let's go get prospects. And whether David Stearns is my president or not, this should be our game plan. So I guess I don't have an issue with that. And you're just trusting Billy Epler is going to get it right with the prospects and he picked the right prospects. The Alonzo deal being done, if they had traded him without Stearns, I agree with you, it would have been nuts. Like that one is extreme. That's got to be a David Stearns decision. Obviously, I got my opinion on it, which I'll make very clear in our David Stearns podcast, which we will be posting in 24 hours, depending on when you're listening, maybe less. But yeah, the idea that they would have ever traded him before Stearns would have been weird. And finally, Jimmy Kearney writes, <coughs> always taking what Buck says with a grain of salt. I like what he said about asking Mauricio what position he envisions playing in his career. After all, the only reason he's not the Mets' top third base prospect is because he's labeled a shortstop prospect. He may be their best second best prospect as well. Second base prospect as well. Buck's comments also had me revisit my feelings on George Kirby's post-game comments, which I was with the masses on, but flipped for two reasons. For those that don't know, George Kirby did something that I was stunned by. He stayed in a game, struggled, I think, in the seventh inning of that game. And when asked about his struggles, said, eh, thought I was done after 90 pitches, which was an inning early. Like, he did the opposite of what you want a pitcher to do. He was basically questioning why his manager didn't take him out of the game, which is nuts. And I also think unfair because George Kirby is the kind of guy that goes deep into games. So it, it creates a perception of him that may not be really fair. Kirby has since apologized, apologized to Scott Service, but those comments made waves, and that's the context of Jimmy's email. All right, so let's get to what Jimmy has to say. Pitching prospects are told what they can't and can't do. They are micromanaged every pitch. They are on pitch limits for years. This generation of starters has been told they aren't as effective after 90 to 100 pitches or the third time around the order. So why shouldn't the pitcher believe what he's been told for years by the very team who developed him and get angered or confused when they go against everyone and everything he's been taught? It's a, it's a great point, by the way. If players are told over and over again, not going to face a guy third time around. Pitch counts at 90. Like that gets ingrained in their head. Of course, they're going to then think, well, I threw 90 pitches. I'm done. I should be out of the game. And so for service to go beyond that, which he should, it's a pennant race. I don't blame Scott service for it, but then you have to question, well, yeah, no wonder the pitcher thinks he's done. He's been told his whole career. He can only throw 90 pitches. Jimmy goes on to write real quick. I'm sorry, Pete. Uh, I'll finish the email, then your thoughts on all this. Think Syndergaard and Harvey questions decisions they made earlier in their career. They never got their big, big payday. Wheeler's career was derailed two years by Tommy John. He was lucky to get his payday, Jake, too. But, not, but that's not the norm. In an age when reliable fifth starters make $12 to $15 million a year, I don't expect a young pitcher to hand every decision over to a manager who's read a couple of minor league reports on their development. For better or worse, it's a new world of baseball. Very good point by Jimmy. Go ahead. Well, first of all, Kirby's situation, I think his biggest issue is how he responded. It wasn't that, hey, I was shocked that I had to go back out there. I thought it was done. 
it was they asked if they gonna they had a conversation. He goes, "No, but we're going to." And it was kind of that was kind of dickish how that came right. off. Right. Uh, but but everything else, I think, up until that point was fine. <laughs> Here's the thing: is though we've seen. I mean, you talk about the they the Jabba Chamberlain rules. The you know how Strasburg and Harvey and all those pitchers went through you know specific innings limits and pitch counts and all this other stuff. And it doesn't make a difference. They still get hurt. They still, I mean, Strasburg is fighting over, uh, you know, retiring and, and fighting over a contract because he can't pitch anymore. He's done. And it's, it's, they tried to do everything right. So, I mean, I don't understand when you, you're allowed to break the rules, why you're allowed to break the rules, why these rules are put in place. You talk to some people, it's like, dude, the best thing for you is just keep on pitching. Right, Other right. people say something different. So I, 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 I don't know the science behind it anymore. I think it almost needs like a, a complete reset of like, let's approach it differently. It's There's a lot of things going on here. I think pitchers throw harder than they ever did. And I think that's why there's so many more injuries. So start with that. They're going max effort more often. So even though we're protecting pitchers more than ever and we feel like it doesn't even help because – Everybody's getting hurt more than ever. I mean, guys are getting hurt at such a crazy rate. There are so few reliable starters in baseball. It's such a short list. Like, even thinking about our Cy Young candidates, Justin Steele came out of nowhere almost. I mean, we remember him last year, but to be a Cy Young candidate? Like, there are very few guys like Gary Cole who you can rely on. So, I think there's a lot of reasons why we have more injuries. I don't think just letting guys throw is necessarily going to fix it because if they're throwing at max effort and we're just letting them pitch, they're going to get hurt either way. Mets take on the Reds this weekend. I do want to point out before you watch this weekend, what happened to Ellie De La Cruz? I mean, the guy was basically anointed the king of baseball. He's down at 235. He's got a 709 OPS. Sometimes we anoint guys way too quick. Just a little bit too quick. But we do have a three-game series against them. David Peterson is going to pitch Friday. Tyler McGill is going to pitch Saturday. And then Jose Quintana is going to pitch Sunday as the Mets play these three games against Cincinnati, now sitting 10 games under 500. Depending on when you're listening, it may already be posted, but Friday and a Saturday, a podcast focusing on David Stearns. Who is David Stearns? Should we be excited about David Stearns? What is David Stearns going to do? What does David Stearns think of Buck Showalter? What is David Stearns' resume in Milwaukee? We'll examine all of it on a very special David Stearns edition of Rico Bronia. We do appreciate you downloading and listening. You can email the pod, the RicoB at gmail.com. Rico, or as it's called, I think in promos, Rico Brogna. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>